Well, please open your Bibles to James 1, 13 to 15. Again, that's James 1, 13 to 15. In Greek mythology, there is a monster known as the Hydra. It's a snake-like creature with multiple heads. Uh, just how many heads it has varies from one account to another. Some say six, for instance. Some say nine. Uh, one account says 50. Its breath is poisonous. In fact, the, the serpent is so poisonous that it said even breathing in the creature's scent can kill you. But that's not the part about the creature that makes it really dangerous. No, the part that makes it so very dangerous is the fact that even if you were to manage to get near this abomination and cut off one of its heads, not only would the head regenerate, but it would multiply. Again, the number varies from one account to another. Some say two heads spring up in the place of the one. Some say three. The number isn't really important, though. Either way, the idea is that every time you cut off one head, several more are going to spring up to take its place. And this means that any traditional attempt to kill the monster is only going to make it stronger. That's what makes it so formidable. In fact, the the Hydra is, is so daunting that the famed hero Hercules ends up being the only man who can kill it, and even he ends up needing to enlist the help of his nephew. Together they devise a plan to cauterize the hydra's necks as soon as the head is cut off, and that's how they manage to slay the creature. As soon as Hercules cuts off a head, his nephew jumps in with a firebrand to cauterize the wound until all the heads are eventually severed. I think there's a sense in which James 1, 13-15 is a lot like that hydra. In this passage, James attempts to address one very practical issue, which is, does God make you sin? That's the question that we explored last week. The context for James 1 is trials. Uh, James begins this letter by writing, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And ever since that point, James has been explaining the benefit of trials and and why we should persevere in them and, and how. The problem, though, is that trials often tend to fuel our sinful desires instead of extinguish them. I explained how this works last week. James, for instance, uh, he, he talks about the stumbling block that wealth can present in trials. He encourages those who are wealthy to be generous uh, with their needy brothers by reminding them of the vanity of their earthly wealth. Well, say you're trying to do that. You determine to make a concerted effort to be more generous to others, and then some sort of disaster hits. Something that puts a strain on your resources. That makes the decision to be generous much harder. It's one thing to want to try to give when you have an abundance. It's much harder when suddenly you find your own standard of living threatened. This is the sort of difficulty that trials presents. They tend to make our attempts at obedience harder, not easier. In fact, in some instances, the pressure brought on by trials can even be so intense that we can feel like we don't have a choice. We can feel like we're being compelled to sin against our will. Well, it's for this very reason that it's not uncommon for Christians in the midst of trials to start to ask themselves, what's God doing here? Is is He trying to, to make me sin? Is He perhaps even compelling me to sin against my will? That seems to be the question the the hypothetical Christian is posing here in verse 13 when James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
As we saw last week, when, when they asked that question, this Christian's not asking whether or not God will sometimes orchestrate situations to test us. Situations which are even designed to force us to choose between good and evil, obedience and sin. God clearly does that. No, what they're claiming is that God is actively persuading them to sin, that He's making sin appealing to them on the inside. He's forcing their hand. Again, the word for tempt in these verses is the word peirazo, and it can refer either to the external pressure to sin or the internal appeal of sin, depending on the situation. The issue that James addresses here is not whether God will place pressure on a person externally. It's whether He will direct the desires towards sin internally. Whether He will, in a sense, create evil desires within a person. And to this, James says, no. Absolutely not. He says, this is something that God most certainly does not do. He provides two explanations for this answer. First, he says, verse 13, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Once again, when James says this, he's addressing the internal appeal of sin. So the idea here is not that one cannot present God with the opportunity to sin, so to speak, or that they cannot attempt to persuade God to sin, because they can't. It's possible to try or to test God in this way. However, no matter how hard they may try to persuade God with sin, He will never be persuaded by it, because internally God finds sin completely unappealing. This is what James means when he says God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. The idea is that there is absolutely zero evil intent in God. None. He's utterly pure, completely holy. And since there's no evil intent in God, he is therefore never going to force someone to stumble. I mean, that's a very logical conclusion, isn't it? God in no way delights in evil. Rather, He finds the thought of it repulsive. So He's not going to make someone sin because sin is completely contrary to His desires. That's the first explanation that James gives for how we can know that God doesn't make us sin. We can know He doesn't make us sin because He's entirely sinless. There's no evil desire in Him. And then second, James explains that we can know that God doesn't make us sin, verses 14 to 15, because the desire for sin comes from inside of us. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James says that we are first lured, and then enticed, or or more literally, carried away by our own desires. I explained last week that what's interesting about this is that James seems to acknowledge that we do sometimes do things that we don't particularly like. We'll sometimes sin in such a way that it truly does feel like we're almost doing something against our will. But if you recall, I explained that as much as it may feel like we're being compelled to sin, at the end of the day, unless someone is actively constraining our actions, we will always do what we want to do. So we're not going to sin against our will. As much as we may have many different competing desires in our choices, there's always going to be one supreme controlling desire that causes the decision that we make, and that desire will dictate what we choose to do. Now, we may not like the fact that we have to neglect other desires. 
but at the same time, we still do what we want to do. Where do those desires come from? James says they spring up from within. They exist within us, and they actually go courting for temptation. This is why we sin according to James. We are tempted to sin because we're temptable. So we can't blame God or Satan or other people for our sin. The only person we have to blame when we sin is ourselves. We do it because we want to. Again, this is how James answers the hypothetical Christian who wants to go and start blaming God for their sin. He says, number one, God's not going to make you sin because that would be entirely contrary to His nature. And then number two, the reason why you're tempted is because sin is entirely consistent with your nature. You do evil, he says, because you are evil. It's your fault. And that answer is sufficient to address the issue that James is tackling in this passage. Once again, the issue his readers are struggling with is whether or not trials are implemented by God in order to force them to sin. His answer sufficiently addresses that question. The problem for you and I is that as this objection raises its head, and as James proceeds to cut it off, a whole host of other related questions spring up in its place. Again, it's kind of like a theological hydra. James says, you can't blame God for your sin because God isn't going to force you to sin. It's entirely contrary to His nature. That raises some pretty interesting questions. For instance, does that mean that God is not in control of the actions of sinful people? I mean, if God doesn't make anyone sin because He's neither tempted by evil nor does He tempt anyone, then that would seem to imply that God doesn't direct or ordain the actions of sinful men. And at first, that that probably seems like a kind of victory since it would apparently preserve the righteousness of God to say that He doesn't control or order such actions. But if He doesn't, if He doesn't, if He's not sovereign over human sin, then a whole host of other problems spring up. For example, would that mean, then, that something managed to come into existence which God didn't plan? That seems problematic, right? Because not only would that impugn the omniscience of God, since it would mean that apparently evil arose more or less by surprise, but it would impugn his omnipotence, his power as well, since it would mean that evil apparently functions outside the realm of God's control. In fact, not only would it mean that evil is outside of God's control, but it apparently would even be independent of God, since it came into being on its own apart from God. I mean, think about the implications of that for a minute. Evil ends up being a kind of alternate God since it brought itself into being apart from the planning or direction of God. That's a problem. Also, if God isn't in control of evil, then how can He predict the future? And Take events like the Great Tribulation, for instance. For instance the Bible predicts these events, meaning it predicts the actions of sinful men before they happen. It predicts their sins, particularly, before they happen. How can God do that if He's not controlling these events? I mean, you could try to appeal to His omniscience, but that only begs the question, how can He definitively know the actions of sinful men before they do them if He's not in control of those actions? Here's another question, and this is especially relevant to what we're studying here in James. 
James says that we're supposed to rejoice in trials because they produce a benefit in our life. But if God isn't in control of evil, then how can we know that? After all, are not many of the trials that we experience a direct result of sin? You know, the corrupt salesman, the slanderous co-worker, the hateful family member, aren't these the instruments of many of our trials? So is God directing the actions of these individuals or not? Because if not, then how can I know that there's some good purpose in the trial? After all, they certainly don't intend to do good to me. And if God isn't in control of their actions, then how can I know that such suffering is for my good? Is God just coming in after the fact and fixing the situation for my good? Is that the only hope I have in trials? That that, that God is especially good at cleaning up messes? Or can I say that the very purpose of the trial is for my good? It's hard to say that if God's not in control, planning, guiding, directing, even the actions of sinful people. But then again, if God does control the actions of sinful people, then how can James say that he doesn't tempt anyone? How can James seem to imply that God does not make people sin? James says we can know that God isn't the source of our sin because he's so completely good. Well, how can a good God ordain evil? That doesn't seem to be consistent. We would seem to assume that if someone is truly good, then they would prevent evil if it's within their power. But we're saying that God is both good and all-powerful, and yet evil still clearly exists. How does that work? Is God simply unable to stop it? Is it His power that's insufficient? Or is it His goodness? Does He perhaps ordain evil because some part of Him is evil? Again, that's obviously a pretty relevant question considering the topic James is covering here in chapter 1. Because if God is not good, then it's pretty hard to say that He's not tempting us in trials. He very well may be. It would be entirely consistent with His character. But then, even if you manage to navigate your way through that dilemma, even if you manage to somehow preserve both the goodness and the sovereignty of God, then still another set of questions arise. Such as, how can I be held accountable for my sin? I said last week that we understand intuitively that we can't hold people responsible for things they do against their will. Well, if God is sovereign over sin, then doesn't this seem to imply that people cannot be held accountable for their sin since they're doing it according to God's sovereign design, since they're doing it, in effect, under the order of God? Another question that arises is, do my choices and actions matter? Do they have an effect? This is a question that often arises when we consider the sovereignty of God. If God has already determined and decreed everything, then what's the point of praying, for instance, or evangelism? We may even start to ask ourselves as Christians, is my lack of progress and sanctification due to the fact that God has not chosen to make me holy. In essence, can I blame my lack of sanctification on God? These are all questions that have to do with the very same issues that James is answering here. And yet James doesn't attempt to provide a comprehensive answer for them. 
He tells us that God doesn't make us sin. He tells us that our sinful desires arise from within us. Basically, He tells us enough to say, yes, you are accountable for your sin. Yes, you are responsible for your lack of sanctification. You can't assign the responsibility to God. But He doesn't try to reconcile those assertions with God's sovereignty. Just like He doesn't attempt to reconcile God's goodness with His sovereignty. It would seem that God's sovereignty isn't something he feels needs to be reconciled at this point in the letter. Once again, his concern is the very practical issue of the relationship between trials and temptations. Does God use trials to force us to sin? He can answer that question without really delving into the sovereignty of God simply by pointing out that, number one, God's character indicates that he's not going to force you to sin, and number two, the reason why you sin under trials is because of your own sinful desires. That may help us to understand how we should interpret our actions in the midst of trials, but it doesn't really answer how God's sovereignty relates to these other issues. And so at this point, there are two routes we can take. Uh, We can either say, you know, James doesn't really attempt to address this sort of tension, and so let's just move on to the next passage in James. Or we can search the rest of the scriptures in in an attempt to answer them. My inclination is to take the second option. And the reason is because I think these types of questions are common enough that if we don't address them, then we're actually going to misapply the force of James' teaching. And so that's what I want to do both today and next week. We're going to do a brief survey on the Scripture's teaching regarding God's sovereignty and its relationship both to the existence of evil and human responsibility. I think once you get a grasp on what the Bible teaches on this subject, what James says here is incredibly eye-opening and convicting. So that's what we're going to do here. Let's try to resolve this tension. Uh, As we get started, I just want to give you a heads up. The the next two weeks are going to feel more like lectures uh, than they will sermons. Uh, I'm going to try to explain and teach uh, more than preach. And I'm going to do this by taking a very straightforward question and answer approach. I understand that that may mean that the next two weeks are going to feel a little cold or or clinical, perhaps. But my goal here isn't to fire you up. It's to inform you. It's to help you understand. And I think this approach can hopefully make things very clear. Finally, I want to give you a heads up that we're going to be moving around a lot in the Scriptures. In other words, I'm not going to be anchored here in James, uh, because that's not where my conclusions are going to come from. I know that's kind of unusual for us, but you have to understand that we're now asking questions that James doesn't attempt to answer. That means we're going to have to go elsewhere to answer them. So if the next two weeks feel a little bit different than normal, this is why we're going to take a very different approach. So maybe just kind of prepare yourself for that mentally. Uh, That being said, let's go ahead and jump in. Once again, the format here is going to follow more of a question and answer structure. So let's begin with what I think is the first question that arises here as we ponder the implications of James 1, 13 to 15. And that's, does God ordain sin? Does God ordain sin? And just so we're clear, what I'm asking here is, does God order or decree sinful actions? The word ordain means to establish or order by appointment, decree, or law. So what we're basically asking here is, does God intend for sin to happen? Does He even direct its happening? Again, I've already mentioned why this question is so important. James says that we can know that we're responsible for our sin because sin is contrary to God's nature, so He's not going to force anyone to sin. 
Well, if that's the case, then how does sin get there? Does it simply come into being on its own? Is evil a kind of accident, a mistake that God didn't plan for? The Scripture's answer is very clear. No, sin is not a mistake. And yes, God most certainly does ordain sin. Proverbs, Proverbs 16.4 perhaps states the matter most plainly. It declares, quote, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. So it's not as if we can say that evil is some kind of accident apart from God's plan, or that God is strictly a passive participant in its existence. No, God has an intended purpose for the wicked, and He's created them for this purpose. What might this purpose be? We see several different answers provided for us in a variety of different scenarios in the Scripture. For example, perhaps the most famous example of God directing or ordaining a sinful response occurs in the book of Exodus. On nine different occasions, Exodus states that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This account is an especially interesting case study in the the dynamic between God's sovereignty and human responsibility for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because we see God doing this while at the same time commanding Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go. In other words, on one hand, we have God telling Pharaoh he wants him to release Israel, while at the same time, we also see God purposefully hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he will not obey that command. Why that's so important, I'll try to come back to in a moment, but for the moment, all I'd ask you to note is that Pharaoh is disobeying God when he refuses to release the people of Israel. So there is an explicit command from God, and yet God directs Pharaoh to disobey that command. That means that this is an obvious example of an instance where God sovereignly ordains sin. So why does He do it? God tells us on several different occasions. In Exodus 7, before the first of the ten plagues, God tells Moses, He says, You shall speak all that I command you, And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hands on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And then listen here, he says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In the same way, in Exodus 14, God tells Moses to pin Israel in by the Red Sea. And he explains, saying, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The idea seems to be that God wants to demonstrate His power before the Egyptians. He wants them to see His might. And if Pharaoh relents under the pressure created by the plagues before they're complete, then God will not be able to fully demonstrate His power. And so He hardens Pharaoh's heart in order to demonstrate His power. The thought is perhaps best summarized when God tells Pharaoh the purpose of His existence. After the sixth plague, God tells Pharaoh that he could have struck him dead by then, but if he had desired so, but he hadn't done it. And in Exodus 9.16, he explains why. 
He says, but for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God means to make His name famous through the Exodus. He wants the whole world to hear about how He saved Israel with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He means to do that through the plagues and through the parting of the Red Sea. But in order to do that, He needs a king who will resist His warnings. He needs a king who will not cave under the pressure of the first or second or third plague. And so He raises Pharaoh up. And he hardens his heart for this purpose so that he can send the plagues and exhibit such a mighty act of deliverance that the news of it will be carried out into the nations and then they will all become acquainted with the power of Yahweh. You see, the wicked have a purpose. God has a use for someone like Pharaoh. And that's why God made him. We see another use for the wicked in Isaiah 10. God says regarding the nation of Assyria, He says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I will send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize and plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now I want you to note here, God says that He's sending Assyria in order to punish Israel. That's what he means by calling Assyria the rod of his anger. He's going to cause Assyria to invade Israel as a means of disciplining them for their sins against him. So Assyria is going to come and afflict Israel, and they're coming as an instrument of God, meaning he's directing them. God says, against the people of my wrath, I command him. And yet what's notable is that in verses 7 to 11, we learn that while God means to use Assyria to discipline the nation for their disobedience, that's not the intent of the king of Assyria. His purposes for invading Israel are motivated by sin. Referring to the king of Assyria, God says, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Uh, Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and, and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? In other words, it's pride that drives the Assyrians to conquer Israel. They invade not as an instrument of God, but by their own strength in order to accomplish their own purposes. That's pride. And it's sin. In fact, in verse 12, we learn that after God has punished Israel with the armies of Assyria, He's then going to turn and punish Assyria for their arrogance in invading Israel. Isaiah writes, he says, When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. That's Isaiah 10, verse 12. And in verses 15 to 19, he continues, he says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning uh, will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. 
the glory of his forest and his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Now, just like with Pharaoh, this passage is a very interesting study in the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There's a lot to observe here. But for the moment, just note that this passage treats Assyria like an axe or a rod or a staff that is wielded by God for His purposes. Clearly, God is directing the actions of Assyria, and yet at the same time, God calls their actions sin, and to the degree that He even punishes them for their sin. So why does He have them commit this sin? Well, it's because He wants to discipline the people of Israel. He wants someone to come and invade them as a correction for their sin. And so once again, we discover that God has a purpose for the wicked. He not only raises them up, but there's a reason He has in mind for their wickedness. There's one more example I'd like to share with you. It's one that I'd imagine many of you are already familiar with. And that's Acts 2, 23. Acts 2, 23. As we consider God's sovereignty over evil... What we discover is that God not only orchestrates the actions of evil men, but He even planned the greatest evil that's ever been committed, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. No doubt the crucifixion was a terrible sin. Again, I think we'd all agree that it's the greatest sin that's ever been committed. And yet in Acts 2.23, we discover that it was planned and orchestrated by God. Peter is preaching the gospel at Pentecost, and as he explains the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. He tells his listeners, verses 22 to 24, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And then listen here, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be uh, held by it. Again, there's an interesting sort of dynamic going on there that I'd like to come back to, but what you should note at the moment is that sinful men carried out the crucifixion according to God's design. Now, do you think there might have been a purpose for the crucifixion? Do you think that God might have had a reason for the wicked in that scenario? Of course he did. He wished to crush his son. Jesus needed to die as a sacrifice for our sins. But in order for that to happen, he had to first be offered up. He had to willingly offer himself as a sacrifice, and he had to be killed at the hands of men. It wasn't enough for him to merely die through a freak accident or something like that. No, he had to be killed. But who's going to kill an innocent man? It certainly isn't going to be a righteous man, right? And so sinful men are called for. Wicked men are needed to accomplish God's purposes. And so He raises those men up. He creates them and ordains their wickedness. And there are more more examples I could give. Again, these types of examples are simply all over the pages of Scripture. You can't get away from them. But these three examples, I think, are sufficient to prove that, yes, according according to the Scripture, God does ordain sin. And this leads us to question number two, which is, so does that mean that God is not perfectly good? 
If he ordains sin, does that mean that God is not perfectly good? Like I said a moment ago, we would assume that a person who is perfectly good would prevent evil if they were able. Here we not only find God not preventing it, but he's actually planning it out. How can that be? Again, that's an important question to answer, considering what James says in verses 13 to 15. He tells us that God isn't going to tempt us because he is neither tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. The idea is that God is perfectly righteous, and so he's not going to force us to sin since it's contrary to his nature. And yet here we see God actually orchestrating evil. How can that be if what James says is true? How can he ordain sin if it's contrary to his nature? And how does the answer to that question shape the way we understand what James tells us in James 1, 13-15? And this is where things start to get more complicated. How do the goodness and sovereignty of God come together? In order to answer that question, I think we need to make two critical observations. Two critical observations. The first observation is that this assumption that a perfectly good being is naturally going to prevent all evil is simplistic. I can say, for instance, that I want my children to be happy. And I do. But does that mean that I always do whatever I can to prevent them from being unhappy? Of course not, right? In fact, sometimes I will even take actions that make them unhappy. If we take this objection that if God is perfectly good, then He must prevent all evil and apply that same reasoning to my interaction with my children, then we'd have to conclude that I must not want my children to be happy. But that isn't true. No, the reason why I sometimes desire their unhappiness is because I understand that unhappiness to be instrumental to a greater happiness that they could not possess without. I will discipline my children, for instance. Why do I do that? Is it because I hate them and I want them to cry? No, it's because I love them and I know that discipline is needed for them to grow up and experience the blessing that comes with obedience to God. I do it for their good. Sometimes we'll we'll even take them to the doctor so the doctor can give them shots. Again, is that because I want them to hurt? Of course not. It's so they can be protected from the diseases which will cause them much greater pain. They often ask me for things, things that they desperately want, things that they think they need. And I tell them no. Again, is that because I don't love them? Again, the answer is no. Rather, it's because I realize those things aren't good for them. Greater happiness is to be found in the denial of their request than in its fulfillment. Well, in the same way, it's possible for a good being to allow or in this instance, even ordain evil, so long as there is some good purpose that can't be accomplished without it. This is why I spent so much time a moment ago establishing that not only does the Scripture indicate that God ordains evil, but that He does so because He has some purpose for it. Pharaoh is hardened so that the nations can see God's power. Assyria is sent so Israel can be disciplined for their sin. Christ is crucified for the salvation of mankind. You examine every one of those instances, and what you discover is that the one thing they have in common is that they all have a good result or end in mind. In every single instance, God actually has a very good purpose in mind. 
Of course, uh, talking about theological hydras, this raises its own set of questions, doesn't it? Uh, for instance, does, does this mean, then, that the end justifies the means? Is it okay for us to steal or murder, for example, so long as we have a good reason for it? Is that the example that God is setting for us? And I'm going to try to address that question in just a moment. Also, if you're paying attention, I said it's possible for a good being to permit evil so long as there's some good purpose that cannot be accomplished without it. The issue that most people are assuming when they're struggling over the existence of evil is the premise that God must be able to accomplish all His purposes apart from the existence of evil. And if that's the case, then yes, we might be able to assume that a perfectly good being would accomplish those purposes without bringing pain or evil into the equation. But what if those purposes cannot be accomplished apart from the existence of evil? Is it then logically inconsistent to think that God would will evil in order to accomplish that good? It doesn't seem so. Now, in the examples I gave, I haven't demonstrated. I'll I'll point this out. I haven't demonstrated that it was necessary for God to ordain the evils I described in order to accomplish His purposes. Uh, Nor am I going to try to demonstrate that. Uh, That discussion is way too involved for what we have time for this morning. Plus, I think we need to take a, a look at a few more ideas before the answer I could give there would even begin to make sense. All I mean to point out for now is that the goodness of God and the existence of evil are not logically exclusive ideas. So long as God brings about the evil for a good purpose, then it's possible for His goodness to remain intact. He can declare on the one hand, I hate evil, while at the same time bringing it about, and there's no more inconsistency of God when He does this than there is in me when I say I love my children and then hold them down while the doctor sets a broken bone. And I would just note that when we're trying to understand the answer that the Scripture gives us regarding why God would ordain evil, this seems to be the reason that it provides. It says, Joseph tells his brothers after they sold him into slavery in Egypt. After he's been made second to Pharaoh and they come to him seeking food, they think that he's going to harm them, but he says he's not going to do it. And he reasons, quote, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The idea, once again, is that God was working through the sin of Joseph's brothers, but he wasn't doing it for an evil purpose, but a good one. He intended to use Joseph to deliver many from starvation and death. So once again, I think this is the first observation we have to keep in mind when considering the consistency between God's goodness and His sovereignty. It's simplistic to assume that a perfectly good being always prevents evil. It is possible for a good being to will the existence of an evil without losing any of their goodness, and so it is with God. Of course, the objection that arises at this point is the one I raised just a moment ago. So are we saying that the ends justifies the means? Can a person lie, cheat, steal, murder... So long as they're doing it for a good cause. We must always keep in mind that we need to be very careful in the way we talk about God, right? Because there are moral and ethical implications to our conclusions. Theology is not just an exercise in the abstract. It isn't merely theoretical. It's supposed to change the way we live. If you want to think about it this way, our orthodoxy shapes our orthopraxy. Our theology shapes our practice. 
So how do we handle this objection that God is using evil to accomplish good and that seems to support an ethical system wherein the ends justifies the means? I'd say the objection is answered with our second observation, which is that while God ordains sin, while God, while, while God ordains sin, the Scripture never seems to indicate that He's directly responsible for it. It never seems to indicate that He's directly responsible for it. Now, throughout our discussion, I've tried to avoid statements like, God causes this sin, or He creates evil. If you notice, instead, I'll, I'll choose phrases like, He ordains evil. Or He creates or raises up the wicked. And this is why. It's because it's not entirely proper. It's not entirely proper to speak of God causing sin or creating evil. And I say that precisely because of what James says here. The point here, remember, is not that God doesn't tempt or try people. He does. He will apply pressure to people externally. We saw that last week, again, with with Abraham and Isaac and, and Israel and the manna. And perhaps most significantly with the false prophets of Deuteronomy 13. But what God will not do, according to James, is directly create the evil desires that carry us away into temptation. He may apply a kind of pressure that brings those desires up to the surface, but He's not going to directly cause them. The only person you have to blame for your sin, according to James, is yourself. Those desires come from within you. Now again, I'm not saying those desires arise independent of God's plan. He ordains them most certainly. And in this sense, I think we have to say that God causes evil either indirectly or passively. But somehow He isn't the direct cause for those desires. You are. How this works isn't entirely clear. It's not entirely clear, but the Scripture occasionally gives us brief glimpses into the dynamics of it from time to time. Uh, probably the best example of it occurs in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 with the census that David takes of Israel. In case you aren't familiar, uh, a census would normally be taken by kings in order to assess their military strength. So for a king of Israel to take a census, it would typically indicate that they're trusting in their own strength rather than in God for their protection. And in that sense, it very often would be a sin. Well, in 2 Samuel 24, we learn that God determined that He wanted to punish Israel. And so He decided to incite David to take a census so that He might punish him. 2 Samuel 24.1 says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So he incites David. David then goes and conducts a census, and and, and the parallel account of this event in 1 Chronicles 21 says in verse 7 that when David completed this census, quote, God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. Again, that's interesting. James says God doesn't tempt anyone, and here the Scripture says He incited David to sin. So what's happening here? What does it mean that God incited David against them? Is He he causing David to sin? Is He creating the evil within David that makes him sin? 
Or is he merely directing the external influences that dig up David's sinful desires? I think we discover the answer in 1 Chronicles 21 when it begins its account of this event by saying, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. The idea seems to be not that God was creating the evil desire within David, but that he drew out the evil desire through this temptation from Satan. Now, of course, this doesn't answer all our questions. It doesn't tell us, for instance, how God was able to to direct Satan to do that without being responsible for the evil desires that motivated him to go and tempt David. But it does enough to demonstrate that however this works, God is still able to bring about these sins indirectly. He doesn't necessarily create the evil desire, but he is somehow able to evoke it, so to speak. And And in this way, he's never responsible for the sin. So he incites David to sin, but he does not cause him to sin. The idea is that the sin is already in David. It's it's, it's his sin. He's responsible for it, and God is bringing it to the surface in order to accomplish his purposes. This is what's so compelling about the examples that I've shared with you this morning. You take Pharaoh, for example. And I said in nine different instances, Moses speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. What I didn't mention is that in eight other instances, it also speaks of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. The word for harden, by the way, means to strengthen there. The idea seems to be that God is emboldening Pharaoh to do what he is already inclined to do in his heart. God sends Assyria to punish Israel. But what do we learn about Assyria's intentions? Their intent was not the same as God's. Their was sin in their heart. They devised their scheme for wicked purposes. It's the same with the cross. The cross, again, was the greatest sin ever committed in history, and yet Peter is careful to note that although God planned it, it was the religious leaders who put Jesus to death as an expression of their own evil desires. Even with Joseph's brothers, Joseph is careful to note Look at the heart here. Look at the intent here. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In each of these passages, it would seem that while God is using the evil desires of sinful men to accomplish His purposes, in none of these instances is He causing or forcing them to sin. They sin of their own accord. God is only working through the sin indirectly. In the words of D.A. Carson, He says, God stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. Quote, again, this is D.A. Carson, quote, To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of His sovereignty. Yet the evil is not morally chargeable to Him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. This would appear appear to be why, for instance, he can ordain Assyria's invasion of Israel on the one hand and then punish them for it on the other. It's because there's a kind of disconnect between God and the sin such that he's not the sin's author. It's the king of Assyria's sin. Its origin is within him, and God is simply exposing it as he accomplishes his purposes. This means that even when he's directing Assyria to sin against Israel, there is no injustice or wickedness in God. All he's doing is exposing the true intent of their heart. 
When he hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's not causing Pharaoh to do anything he doesn't already want to do. He's just strengthening Pharaoh to act on the evil desire that already resides in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh wants to rebel. He's already rebelling on the inside. This is why the Exodus will say that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. The evil desire is already there. God is simply giving the means, giving him the means to act on it. He's exposing the sin that's present there. If I could use legal terminology, God isn't guilty of entrapment. If you're not familiar with that term, that's when law enforcement will induce someone to commit a crime that they weren't already planning or uh, that they were unlikely to perform. And it's illegal in our own legal system. A sting, on the other hand, is when law enforcement lays a kind of trap to catch criminals who already intend to perform a criminal act. Those are legal, and the difference between the two is intent. In entrapment, an otherwise innocent person is goaded into a criminal act, but in a sting, an already guilty person is caught in the midst of a criminal act. The one creates guilt, the other reveals it. And that's not wrong to create, uh, to reveal guilt. That's actually called justice, to reveal guilt. That's what law enforcement is doing in a sting. They're enforcing justice. In the same way, God does not entrap a person, but He will run a kind of sting. And that's not wrong, because all He's doing in that scenario is bringing evil intent to light. He's enforcing justice, not creating an injustice. If you're wanting to understand how it is that the means, or that the ends do not justify the means, I think there's your answer. God's wisdom is such that He doesn't just use the acts of wicked men to accomplish His purposes, but He actually invokes those sinful actions in order to condemn these men for their sins. Again, why does He incite David to take the census? It's because He's already angry with Israel on account of their sin. He's indicting Pharaoh, right, while he displays his glory to the nations. He's casting judgment upon the world while he redeems us from our sins. In other words, God doesn't exactly use evil means to accomplish a good end, not from his perspective. No, he's using a good means to accomplish a good end. He's exposing the evil of the wicked while accomplishing his purpose. And this is because while God does ordain evil, he's not the source of it. Again, he stands behind it asymmetrically. Now, I'll state once again that there's some mystery in how that works. How can God ordain evil without being the direct source of it? How does he, in a sense, cause it passively, indirectly, yes, but still cause it without being culpable for it? Again, the Scripture never really answers that question for us. It gives us glimpses into that dynamic, but it doesn't answer that question. It simply affirms both that God ordains evil and that He is perfectly good. It tells us that God directs all things, and yet sin originates within ourselves. There's mystery in the Scripture's answer to this question, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, from time to time, we should expect that there are going to be moments when we peer into the depths of God and we can't see bottom, guys. And I think this is most especially true as we ponder the justice and the goodness of God, considering what the Scripture tells us 
about who we are as sinners and how our minds have been corrupted by sin. You know, I think it's funny. A lot of people will reject the existence of the biblical God because they find His description of good and evil and how He interacts with man so objectionable. Well, when you consider what the Bible has to say about mankind, that objection is laughable. It's akin, it's akin to a homeless man rejecting financial advice from Warren Buffett because he doesn't think it makes sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. It's because he knows more than you, right? So it is when sinners begin to question the righteousness and justice of a holy God. So up to this point, we've already answered whether or not God ordains evil. He does. We've answered whether or not this indicates that God is not good. It does not. Now I think we're prepared to answer a third question. And by this point, the answer to this question, I think, should be so obvious that we don't need to spend hardly any time really discussing it. The question is, how can I be held accountable for my sin? How can I be held accountable for my sin? Once again, I said last week that we understand intuitively people can't be held responsible for things that they do against their will. Well, if God is sovereign over sin, then doesn't this seem to imply that people cannot be held accountable for their sin since they're doing it according to God's sovereign design, since they're doing it, in effect, under the order of God? And to answer that question, the answer is yes, they can be held accountable. And the reason is because God doesn't force anyone to sin, and most especially not against their will. In other words, no, we can't be held accountable for things we are forced to do, but that doesn't describe us. It's like James tells us in our passage, God isn't tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Rather, everyone is lured and enticed by their own desire. In short, we sin because we want to. The desires originate inside of us, not outside. Now, we could join with the objection of Romans 9, where the clay says to the one who molded it, why have you made me like this? In short, we could ask God, why did you give me these desires? But that just takes us back to our previous point, since when we ask that question, what we're really doing is calling God's justice and righteousness into question. And once again, we're not really in a position to even ask those questions, let alone answer them. It's above our pay grade to fully understand the justice and righteousness of God. In fact, that's precisely the sort of answer that Paul gives in Romans 9. He says, uh, when this objection is raised, he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? The point clearly seems to be that we're not privy to that kind of explanation. And as sinners, we're not really in a position to start demanding that God answer to us for his actions. And so once again, there's mystery regarding precisely how God is able to make us like this and remain just. But all the same, it doesn't change the fact that the Bible says that you are the reason for your sin. That you cannot blame God for it. And so yes, you will, you can and will be held accountable for every sinful deed you do. In other words, our conclusions from last week to this week haven't changed. The only person you have to blame for your sin is yourself. You're responsible for your own sin. And on that note, we're out of time. So in summary, what we've seen today is that God is sovereign over evil. 
And yet he himself is not culpable for evil because he causes it only indirectly. We are the ones who are directly responsible for the sin in our lives, and so we can be held accountable for it. And I think once we grasp these points, some very practical questions pop up, particularly, I think, as it relates to our sanctification. You see, at the heart of this question over God's sovereignty and human responsibility, one of the things we really want to know is, do my choices matter? Do I have any... This, I think this in particular, what we want to know is, do I have any control over whether I grow closer to God or not? That's, that's why the idea of God's sovereignty is so daunting, isn't it? That's why we, we bristle at this idea. It's not because of God's sovereignty over trials. No, we take comfort in that thought. But what bothers us when we really ponder this notion is the thought that Perhaps we are one of the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I mean, am I Pharaoh? Is God raising me up to sin in order to demonstrate His glory? Can I do anything about that? Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you ever thought, for instance, I, I, wish, I wish I could be more holy, but I guess it's just not in the cards for me. I guess it's something God hasn't planned. Well, if so, then you'll want to be here next week because that's what we're going to discuss. That's really at the heart of what James is dealing with here. Who is responsible for your lack of holiness? And now that we've cleared some of the brush, I think we're in a position to successfully tackle that question. So once again, I invite you to join us as we close out our discussion of James 1, 13 to 15 next week. Let's pray.